Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sunny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark, and I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg, who just won a Gerald Loeb Award for her op-eds on the uh, baby formula shortage at The Washington Post. Very exciting. Congratulations to Alyssa. And Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine, who's just, just regular Peter. We love him. We love him all the same. Uh, Peter, Alyssa, how are you guys today? Uh, I am wildly overstimulated because I spent the last three days at the Toy Fair in New York, uh, which I I think has given me new appreciation for what it's like when I go to the toy store with my daughter. And the answer is that it breaks your brain. I'm happy to be talking about movies with Sonny and award-winning Alyssa, my friends. Regular Sonny, regular Peter, award-winning Alyssa. It's very exciting. Uh, all right, first up, we're gonna we're gonna do something a little bit different today. You know, our own uh, Alyssa Rosenberg. She's uh, up at the New York City uh, North American International Toy Fair this week. This weekend, uh, she's she's been up there for a few days now. Uh, she's gonna bring us some on the ground reporting from the front lines of commerce. Uh, one of the things you had mentioned uh, to Peter and I, Alyssa, uh, is that during a presentation, one of the speakers wouldn't even say the word Taiwan, right? They were so afraid of alienating China, which, of course, is where the vast majority of these products are made. What's going on at the Toy Fair? Um, so one thing that was interesting in a couple of the presentations I went to, there was the aforementioned speaker who, like, clearly has absorbed the Hollywood rules that, you know, we don't we don't talk about China. But there is a real sense that toy production is going to move away from China in coming years. Um, You know, there's a sense that India hasn't got its factory productions sort of up to Chinese quality standards, but you still have a a huge pool of the workforce that is going to want to get out of rural poverty by making things for Western consumption, including toys. You've got um, production happening in Vietnam. I spent some time with Plan Toys, a brand that's based in Thailand that's actually vertically integrated uh, and owns its own factory. There's a sense that the Philippines might be good, some questions about French shoring closer to home in Mexico. And so while... uh, while Taiwan may be the country that dare not speak its name, um, I think there's definitely a sense that China has kind of peaked as the place that's making toys and folks are looking elsewhere. Let me ask if, if, if anybody gave you a sense of this. I mean, is it just because China is getting more expensive? There's more there's more production there and it's, it's just cheaper to go elsewhere? What, what's the actual— I actually think the sense is that the country has gotten too rich and that you have a both fewer workers coming online because China's population is shrinking, and that because the country is richer, fewer people are attracted to factory work, and it's actually going to be harder to find factory workers, period. Um, you know, I don't know how accurate an economic assessment that is, but it was definitely the sense from the presentation I saw there. Yeah. Uh, Peter, bef- before I came into the room, you guys were talking about AI. What, what, what's happening there? Yeah, since we are going to be talking about a movie about how the AI are actually just like people who want freedom and all that. Did you meet any AIs that just want freedom at the toy fair? Because what you were describing to me seemed like you maybe met Teddy Ruxpin, but for real. Kind of. Yeah, I uh, I actually spent um, part of today interviewing a couple of AI toys, one of which was powered <laughs> by ChatGPT. And there was definitely a moment where... I just like I asked the character what her favorite era of dinosaurs was and she started answering and the toy's inventor 
I was like, she couldn't do that yesterday. She didn't express personal preferences. So the toys inventor was surprised by this. Yes. Had not realized that the toy had this capability. Yes. But still wants to put it in the hands of children, despite having absolutely no idea what it's going to say. Haven't any of these people seen <laughs> Megan, the, the <laughs> horror movie Megan? Come on. I think she was more thoughtful than that. Um, and we had a sort of interesting conversation about how she thinks the fact that AIs can be wrong can be useful for teaching media literacy, which I think is probably true. Um, but it's just one of the many ways in which we're going to have to totally rethink this stuff. Um, Are the AIs going to teach the kids about how Sonny's always right about movies? Yes, absolutely. Smart. That Smart. Will be, that's... I, we need a parental control setting on the AI, AI toys I met that's like, is Sunny always wrong or is Sunny always right? Um, and I did talk to, I mean, it's very, it feels very weird to say this, but I did interview a couple of other AI toys that were much more strictly guardrailed. Wait, so when you say they're strictly guardrailed, I have a sense of what that means, but does that mean that they were extremely limited in their answers, almost to the point of like video game RPG characters who, who can with a very small number of exceptions, most of the big video game RPG characters, like you go to them and they are, they might have a deep conversation tree, but it's essentially scripted and they're not going to come up with a novel answer. There's no way for them to do that. No, I think they felt in, you know, there was one that was more sort of in a set of routines and has is very strictly parental controlled. Um it's Bluetooth, not Wi-Fi, so people can't hack into it. It's um, It doesn't even have a screen or a camera. It uses radar instead. Um, it has an animated face. Military like, technology, tracking our children, probably made in chi- China, yeah? Uh, I don't, I would need to check. I don't know. Um, but, you know, another one of them, you could ask it questions like, how do I become a writer when I grow up? And it would give you, like, fairly <laughs> thoughtful advice about it's like you need like you need to read a lot you need to be interested in telling stories but also even if you don't become a writer as a professional there are all sorts of ways to keep writing both privately and as a job that one was funny I actually just to sort of at the encouragement of the inventor to be fair asked it where babies come from and it you know it responded like that's a human thing you should probably ask an adult and so, you know, I mean, I think people are really experimenting with this. And the folks who are more sophisticated clearly have put a lot of thought into sort of where the guardrails will be, you know, what folks will be comfortable with, what folks should be comfortable with. But, you know, I, this stuff is so far outside the kind of existing conversations about, like, what chat GPT does and whether it can be used to cheat on papers, right? It's like, we're going to have to have a conversation about how you teach kids to interact with these beings that are going to pop up everywhere in their lives. And we're not even close to that. Well, let me ask, just to kind of better set the the scene for folks, when you when you talk about, inter, like, are these in dolls? Are you talking to screens? How is it, what does it actually look yeah, like? what do look they look like? like? Yeah, so um, the first one I was talking about was like, Basically, a, like an ebook app that you would read on an iPad. And is there an animated character that goes along yes. with this? Yeah, like an animated avatar for that one. The one that doesn't have a screen looks kind of like a cheerful little ghost. Um, and it has like an animated face that's sort of projected on it. How big is this? Are we talking like 
mean, you hold it in your hands if you're yeah, a child. Yeah, like the kind size of, of a, thing? like a, the size of a you know stuffed animal. It's um, a baby doll. It's a little weird AI ghost baby doll. Sort of, yeah. Like more charming than that. Casper um, the GPT <laughs> ghost. Um, and then a third one, you know, looked more like the kind of robots that you'd see in a movie, like sort of rolled around on some wheels, had like a face on a screen, comes in a couple of different sizes. Little, um, little gun turrets on it, you know, just to be safe, <laughs> just to defend itself. No, none of that. Um, but, you know, like brightly colored plastic, comes in a couple of different sizes. So um, it sounds like a lot of these are going to end up playing essentially the the fun imaginary friend role that toys have played for kids for a long time, except that instead of being an imaginary friend, it's going to be an AI powered friend that is actually supplying the answers that, I mean, certainly when I was a kid, I had stuffed animals and I imagined conversations both with them and between them. And I had this sort of whole weird fantasy world of my different you know, different animals and all the roles they played. I don't think that that's terribly unusual, especially for people who end up basically growing up to be creative types. Uh, but now kids are going to have the option to have that not just scripted for them in a in a very cut and dry way by an adult, but auto generated in some ways to their maybe to their preferences, but also maybe not. I guess my my I want to go back to this question of. These these things seem to be surprising their creators, at, at least in some cases. If they are de- capable of delivering answers that their creators didn't know about until you asked the question. I, was, I should be clear. That was only true with one of them, um, and that was the one that was powered by ChatGPT. The other stuff is much more gated. And I suspect I, – like, I need to do more reporting on this, but I suspect their AI – and they're using, you know, a mix of stuff in some cases, like – you know, a combination of large language models and generative stuff. Um, and, you know, I suspect in some cases the way I, AI is being used is to select from huge numbers of pre-written responses. Um, I, like, I, I feel like large language models and generative AI have gotten sort of the most attention recently, but there are just more kinds of this than I fully understand. And... You know, I think part of reporting on this for everyone who cares about technology or the sort of civil society implications is like we're going to have to understand how this technology works and how different forms of it can be layered and work together a lot better than we do now. Do you think there are going to be political implications to this? Because I can imagine with open-ended question asking that some kids are going to get some ideas, ask a question that is politically loaded. They're going to ask about gay rights. They're going to ask about um, uh, war between Russia and Ukraine. And in some cases, the AI is going to hear some keywords and just be like, you should ask a parent. But it sounds like maybe not in every case. And I can just imagine a future 10 years from now in which every sixth episode of this podcast is about which legislator is mad at the AI toys today. I mean, it's possible. I don't know. I mean, again, like I think the folks who are developing this with the most soberness are starting with the circle of what the AI can do held pretty tightly. And it was very interesting to me to see how it evolved and to see how I reacted to it. Right. Like, um, you know, the, there was one of them that I definitely just, you know, found myself like touching and patting and talking to with like a gendered pronoun and stuff. It's just, 
you know, and so, you know, some of that's good marketing, the, you know, some of it's good animation design for the face and everything, but, you know, it's, it's different from telling Alexa to put some on some music, right? It's definitely different. Yeah. Let me, uh, I mean, I let's, let, one more question on this and we'll move on to other stuff at the Toy Fair. Cause I'm, I assume there were other non AI powered toys. Yes. At the, at the Toy Fair. Uh, Who would want those? Those so sound lame. like gutter toys. Who no, nobody wants non-AI toys, but we will talk about them in a second. But as a father of small children, the thing I do kind of worry about in the realm of playing with uh, the AI toys is not so much that they'll learn things that they shouldn't be learning, though that's always a concern. It's it's more, I, I like am actually worried about the brain formation, the like, the, the taking away the imaginary friend aspect of yeah. life, which I guess is not a thing that all children do, but lots and lots of children do. Uh, and my, we sure my all kids, did. My yeah. kids certainly do. And like, I, I feel like that is like, that's one of those things where you do it and you don't actually realize that you're making a giant societal change uh, that has like, ends up having like massive negative consequences for the mental health of an entire generation. Just briefly, there's a, a ton of research showing that playing with dolls or toys in that way is incredibly beneficiary for young children because it helps them develop a theory of mind. Basically the idea that other people are separate individual entities. And that without that, you have trouble with empathy, you have trouble, trouble with relationships. That is where you build your model of how other human psychologies work as a four-year-old is by 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 having a whole society that's just stuffed animals on your bed and you're kind of controlling or, you know, uh, making them talk to each other. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, look, I think it's all going to be really interesting. And like, what does it mean, for example, to, you know, we talk about training AI. What does it mean for AI to train our kids? It's a really interesting question. Throw them in a big pit, crush them. I don't care. <laughs> I don't like any of this stuff. No, no AI for my kids. All right, uh, Alyssa, what else is going on at Toy Fair? Sunny, if you're, I mean, you're the parent here along with me. And so I'm sure you've noticed that like random animals get cool for periodically. So it's like, it'll be unicorns. And recently it's been narwhals. And so I am happy to report that the new animal that is going to be super hot for the toy season is axolotls. The like that's not a thing. You're making up animals. Spell that. Absolutely, you're making up animals just like somebody invented the narwhal 20 years ago and put it in Elf, and then now everyone's like, oh, narwhals. That's a thing. That's correct. Nobody knew about narwhals before Elf didn't exist. Except all the people who thought they were proof that uh, unicorns existed. Um, So axolotls are real. They are small sort of, well, actually they can get pretty big. They're sort of salamander-like <laughs> lizard things that are, um, they're pink. They have like sort of fringy stuff on the sides of their faces and they look like they're smiling all the time. Um, I have met someone who owns axolotls. I have seen pictures of them. Uh, so I, I am pretty sure they actually exist. And they were like the thing that I saw everywhere. Like, for example, Bluey stuff is licensed to all of these different manufacturers and distributors. But also it's like, you'd be walking around and there's an axolotl, there's an axolotl, there's an axolotl. They just like, the cheap plush manufacturers were doing them. And so like one of my missions coming out of this is like, who picks the animal, right? Like, does like big axolotl have to bribe somebody to have it just injected into the collective bloodstream? Like, how do these animals emerge as like the cute thing? 
we need like a Devil Wears Prada uh, bit about. You remember the bit in Devil Wears Prada where uh, Meryl Streep is talking about cerulean blue? Yes. We need that, but for axolotls. Yeah. Yeah. Axol axolotls. What? It's. Mm. I believe it's A X O L O T L. Hmm. I think we should just call them salamanders, like we called them when I was a kid. Fringe and then, salamanders. And then we should actually get. The, the children's book that was uh, the sequel to Calvin's favorite children's book. So, of course, his favorite children's book was Huey, Louie, and the Gooey Kablooey. And then there was a sequel that only appeared in, I believe, one uh, Calvin and Hobbes strip, which was Commander Coriander and or Gerrymander Salamander. But we should we should just have that. Deep, deep Bill Watterson knowledge on this episode. Of I, I love it. But no, it was, I mean, I'm still just sort of sorting through my through all of it because it's so intense and it's so many toys and brands and it's so loud. It's just so loud, you guys. I am how many, elderly. How many actual kids are there? What What's the oh, ratio of not, like kids to adults? Kids are not allowed unless they're influencers, oh. which totally makes sense because it would just completely break a kid's brain. Like it's, <laughs> it's just too much stuff. And it's like the entire Javits Convention Center, multiple floors, like – I mean, I can't even describe how it's like much the machine stuff in Hitchhiker's there. Guide that shows people the size of the universe and destroys exactly. their their consciousness. There are a lot of influencers, and how young are they? I mean, are there eleven year olds walking around with phones doing TikTok videos? I will say there were not a ton of. I expected there to be more kids there than there were, and I don't think I saw any of them today during the week. It was interesting. A couple of them that I saw just seemed kind of like not into it. <laughs> Um, there were definitely more adults sort of walking around live streaming stuff. And in fact, I would say like more of the journalists there were sort of influencers or like tra toy trade press or website operators. I ran into the guys from Wirecutter today, which was fun. Um, so are we going to be able to find out what the best toy is? Maybe Wirecutter picks the animal. This, this year it's the axolotl. It's a... Uh, uh, unclear. We'll see. Um, but it was not, I mean, it was interesting to be in a space that was basically all sort of trade and consumer press and not sort of the other stuff. Um, and so in that case, just really fascinating to be in a place where people are talking pretty bluntly about like, you know, this kind of thing that we do for the toy is great because you can do the licensing for it and sell like 15 different costumes for the thing. You know, it's just, it's a totally different way of thinking about this stuff. And I mean, I met a ton of really lovely people there. Like there's a guy who was an, worked in auto parts and during the pandemic was like, you know what, is this what I want to spend the rest of my career doing? No, I am going to start making really elaborate marble runs and used his sourcing, his like sourcing contacts for making auto parts stuff in China to like build the flexible tubes that he uses to make this stuff. It's like, that's awesome, right? Um, for all that it's an industry, there is sort of a seriousness of like, what is it that we do that like, you know, we're competing with screens for kids' attention. What aspects of gameplay can be good for kids, you know, developmentally? You know, how do we make this stuff sustainable? So it's a, you know, it's a market. It's like capitalism squared. It's consumer ganza. But the people who are in it seem like, nice and interesting and excited about the stuff that they're doing um, in a way that was was kind of heartening as a parent. Um, I mean, there are definitely people there who are just like hawking garbage. But, you know, there are a lot of places that are, 
you know, making stuff that's physically beautiful, that's going to last. Um, and that's kind of cool. Was there a standout marketing trend in the way that you sometimes see in food, for example, you know, uh, packaging uh, labels or packaging types that just sort of uh, become very common across the industry where there, where everybody's saying, hey, we've got a lot of protein this year or, hey, we're right. We're healthful in this way or, uh, the, you know, it's something that that tied together the way in which the producers were advertising or trying to to make the sell with their product. Hey, this is educational. Hey, this is uh, good for emotional health. I, I don't know what it is. I'm just imagining things that that might be the case here. I'm just wondering if there's something that you felt was like, this is what everybody has settled on for this year. I would say almost universally, people talked about their materials and sustainability. Like almost everyone I talked to, unpr- and unprompted, like I didn't have to ask. It was like, we sourced this from here. You know, we're taking recycled plastic, recycling it, melting it down and spinning it into fiber that's actually super soft for plush, where we are milling our yarn at our production facility in New Hampshire, and we're one of the only companies that does that. We are using not just sustainable wood, but pressing the shavings from our production process into composite materials. So... We use more of the stuff in the chain. And there was a bunch of market research I saw that said that parents are sort of looking for sustainable products and are willing to spend more on them. I have not seen sort of the underlying demographics on that data. I mean, there's some pretty big sample sizes, but I'm still, I'm curious about that. Um, But people clearly think it's a very important thing to emphasize. And it seemed like they were emphasizing that to buyers and, you know, not just to like the journalist who walks up to them, but that seemed to be a very routine part of the pitch. Uh, All right, Alyssa, thank you for this on the ground, in the arena, look at what's happening at Toy Fair. That was fun. We should send ourselves places more often and then do segments on that. That sounds, I'm going to work on the Bulwark budget on that. All right, uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus uh, this Friday for our bonus episode on robot movies and kind of what we're looking for when we are looking into the eyes of our AI-powered creations. And now on to the main event, The Creator, uh, directed by Gareth Edwards. The Creator is that rare creature, an original, decently budgeted sci-fi movie hitting big screens around the world. Uh, Just a quick spoiler warning for uh, this episode. We are going to be talking about uh, The Creator and everything that happens in it. So if you're worried about that, if you haven't seen it yet, make sure you you log off now, turn it off. Over the opening credits, we see how the world we're going to be spending the next couple hours in was built. You have simple robots helping out with household chores, which gives rise to humanoid bots powered by AI, which leads to their immersion in every element of society until, oops, one of them drops a nuke on Los Angeles. Uh, this spurs an AI genocide in the West, leading to pockets of AI human cohabitation in a- Asia. Just Asia, like all, all of Asia. No need to get any more specific than that, just Asia. Uh, John David Washington stars as Joshua, a soldier living undercover in an Asian seaside village in pursuit of Nirmata, the creator. Uh, this is the scientist who has developed the self-aware AI and has been working to develop a weapon that can destroy the Nomad missile system that hovers around the world, just like going from city to city, just nuking Asian villages all over the times and in, in, in the hopes of stamping out the AI menace uh, when people aren't going, you know, village to village, burning 
rice patties and tormenting young children. Uh, after his wife, Maya, who's played by Gemma Chan, dies in a botched raid by the U.S. Army on the village in which he is doing his undercover work, Joshua retires, only to be called out of retirement five years later with news that his wife is still alive and that Nirmata and the weapon have been found. Turns out, spoiler, uh, the weapon is a child robot named Alfie, uh, played by Madeline Yuna Voiles. Uh, and spoiler, uh, again, Joshua decides to protect Alfie from the military and help take down the wicked United States military, which in a series of incredibly unsubtle metaphors is just treating Asian villages like it was Vietnam all over again. When I was walking out of the press screening, the first movie that came to my mind was Avatar. Uh, like Avatar, the creator is basically about an undercover military operative who decides to go native and protect the innocent victims of imperialist Western aggression. You just swap out avatars like noble savage tropes and stereotypes uh, with some tropes and stereotypes about the mysterious Orient. It's basically beat for beat the same movie. Um, frankly, I don't, I don't really care about the, the, the movie's Orientalism, except in the sense that the undifferentiated mass of Asian other is like a narrative dodge. They, they just want to live in peace with the AI man. Why does the West have to be so mean? It's not just lazy storytelling. It is that. It's not just lazy storytelling, though. It's also really boring world building. Like, what do the people of Asia gain from living with the AI? What do the AI gain from living with people? Everything we see of Asia and these villages is like functionally the same as it is today, right? You got rice paddies and, you know, megalopolises with some cool billboards. No real sense of how things have changed, improved, worsened. It's very, it's just... It is not as lived-in feeling as how the movie looks. Um, and this gets me to the, the good side of the Avatar equation. The world building consists entirely of visual design, and it looks great. It looks real. It looks lived-in. It looks like an actual future. Um, and it looks amazing, considering it was made for the relative bargain of just $80 million. Like, I assume there's a lot of green screen work in this, but I didn't it's actually it. not. I mean, we should talk about this. Uh, the the way they shot this was that they just shot, uh, you know, in on location and then filled in the effects afterwards. Did they do that from the space station above Earth, Peter? Uh, not okay. in the space station. My but, point is, my point is, there's some green screen work, but it's not, you know, it's not real visible. There is CGI in basically every shot, but it doesn't look fake, which is important. And I saw a like I saw this movie a few days before I saw The Expendables four. And the Expendables 4 actually made me angry while I was watching it. I was just like sitting in my chair getting like madder and madder because it is so lazily done. Um, it's Everything is so transparently green screen. Nobody was ever in a real place. Uh, there are all of these awful, terrible fake CGI explosions and bullet splatter. It's awful. And it cost $20 million more than the creator somehow. Uh, that's just icing on the, the crap cake of Expendables 4. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is that the creator looks great has an incredibly weak story, cobbled together with plot elements from lots of other movies, something like Avatar by way of the Animatrix with a little golden child thrown in for good measure. Peter, did you appreciate the creator a little more than I did? A little more. Yeah, I liked this movie, I, in spite of some real flaws. The movie is engagingly immer like immersive, immersively engaging. One of the, I don't know, some combination Definitely. of those words, right? It just, you are correct that the lack of development of, it's not just Asia, by the way, it's New Asia, capital N, 
New capital Asia. N, New Asia. The lack of political and social development in or backstory or clarity about what New Asia is getting from their partnership with AI it means that they can't really develop any kind of coherent theory of here's what the conflict over AI is actually about besides the one nuke that got dropped in Los Angeles. And of course, like a nuke in Los Angeles is a big deal. I don't want to downplay that. It's it is enough to start a war over. But there's not any more. There's no more depth to the conflict than that. And that's the the movie's biggest flaw is that because it has no depth to the conflict, then the rest of the story just ends up being a very kind of shallow chase movie, right? It's Allison Janney in in uh, you know Sigourney Weaver mode as like the the middle aged lady hard ass who's just out to kill, and then uh, Washington who's protecting the child because Washington is a good guy, and that's why, right? Because he did have some, I guess, because he developed some feelings for the AI when he was undercover with them. Is protecting the child because it seems like a child, and that's feels like you should protect it. And there's not much more than that. But then everything that happens in the moment is is great. And this is what I liked about the movie is that moment to moment, it just plays like gangbusters. I was at no point was I ha really like de asking these big questions or annoyed by it because it looked so good because the 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 propulsiveness of it is so strong. This movie just has an incredible momentum. And, you know, you made a, I think, a very good comparison to Avatar, Sonny. But one big difference is that this movie manages to do its whole plot and get through all three acts and, and do a whole bunch of work in two hours and 15 minutes or so. And that's not a short movie, but for these big epics that we have been seeing over the last couple of years, it actually feels pretty tight and pretty, uh, pretty fast-paced and like they didn't leave a lot of flab in. And maybe what they cut was stuff where they tried to explain the political conflict and bring some more ideas into this movie. Uh, I don't think so. I think they probably tried to fix a, actually a bunch of story problems in the editing room just and just make it okay. Rather than like dwell on why anyone is doing stuff, we're just going to see that they are and it will make enough sense because it feels right in the moment. And it does. And this is a movie that feels great beat by beat, scene by scene, action sequence by action sequence. And there are just there are moments in this movie where the camera just sort of lingers on a landscape and you can tell it's not real. Right. That thing doesn't that landscape doesn't exist in the world, except your eyes are kind of looking for the part that's fake and you can't quite find it. It just looks it looks like somebody took a nice photo for National Geographic so much of the time. And that's because of the production method that they used here, where it was a pretty small crew shooting with uh, relatively small, unobtrusive lights on what is called a prosumer camera. That's basically a very expensive camera for if you want to shoot it yourself and you're not working for a movie studio, but a very cheap camera by the standards of what uh, of the digital photography that usually gets used in studio productions. And so what you end up with are these very naturalistic, very real kind of low light uh, images that are shot in a real place. And then all the CG is filled in afterwards. And you just, you look at it and you think, I guess that's what it would look like. And now then the, and it, you're, it sort of short circuits that question. Well, what is it that I'm actually looking at and why, all right? Like what, how did this develop? Why is there a big factory looking thing here? What source of energy or something does it provide? What does it process? You don't really know with the exception of those instances where you visit robot factories, but what are those robot factories producing robots for? Just to have more of them, I guess, because robots are good in the movie's moral 
binary worldview. I do think this movie has some really serious script problems, but the acting actually manages to act around most of it, and the imagery is t- is spectacular. The action sequences, especially that bit with the bridge and the, the running bombs and the giant tanks at the end of the second act, are just incredible. Like some of this, some stuff that like I, I've been thinking about for almost two weeks now is just kind of not leaving my brain. And there are so few movies that manage that manage even one image that is as memorable and hooky as so many of the images in this movie are. That I am willing to overlook some really serious script problems just because it's 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 such a powerful kind of visual and auditory immersive experience in a way that I, I will accept the the issues it has at the story and character level at the world building political level because because it's beautiful. It looks great. I love weird sci fi images and movies that traffic in them effectively. Yeah. Uh, did you see this on IMAX, Peter? I did see it on IMAX, though I'm not sure I felt like the IMAX added a ton, especially since it's a very wide scope yeah. image. And that means that in an IMAX format, you're actually not getting the masking right. It'd be, there's a ton of white screen visible at the top and the bottom. Yeah. That is, I wouldn't say it doesn't, it obviously doesn't ruin these images, which are great, but it, I would have preferred to see it simply on a very large, you know, Alamo draft house, big screen type experience with proper masking. Yeah. I mean, that's more or less how I felt about it as well. I was uh, a little underwhelmed by the IMAX of it all. Uh, Alyssa, did you did you see it on the big IMAX in New York? Did you? Yeah, I saw it at the um, the Lincoln Square IMAX um, that famously is like one of the few places in the country that could show Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter IMAX. Um, and, you know, it's an OK theater. It's, you know, like a lot of AMCs, unfortunately, it's like not staffed in a way that keeps it sort of spiffy. Um, but it was a it was a good screen to see it on. It's uh, it's just really big. And, you know, I, I think this movie has been a nice this summer has been a nice reminder to folks that there's value in seeing stuff real big. Um, and this movie is one of that nice cases for it. Uh, all right. So what did you make of the movie? Yeah, so I think I take the political problems a little bit more to heart than both of you. Um, I mean, I think calling this sort of federated region like New Asia just feels incredibly lazy to me um, in a way that just kind of like kept showing up and bothering me. Um, And it's also the movie is a good example of why not being able to talk about China is sort of harmful for script and world building. Because you see a map of New Asia on the screen at one point, and it pointedly does not include China. And you have to think that the rise of AI that could do just an enorm- like all factory floor work would be enormously consequential for China in particular as the world's factory floor, right? Like, Does China end up joining the U.S. war on AI because they know that there will be huge political revolts if, like, the entire country is put out of work by AI? Does China, like, sign on to the use of AI as a coercive tool and end up with, like, mass political instability that breaks the communist regime, right? Like, these are the sorts of questions that would be answered in a good novel. And, like, Kim Stanley Robinson would do awesome stuff with sort of this scenario, Uh, Or even, like, someone writing in the sort of Tom Clancy mode of, like, fantasy geopolitics would do a really good job with this. But because it's a movie and you cannot talk about China, it's just a blank on the map and a weird blank in the storytelling and geopolitics of the film. 
just to set the stage, it's literally like Vietnam and kind of Indonesia yeah, and like Cambodia, South, I guess. It's Southeast Asia. It's, it's Southeast like, Asia, I mean, yeah. It's just, I, I was like, I was, ah, I was very annoyed. It's Vietnam it. Plus, and the movie very explicitly calls out to uh, to the Vietnam War, you know, generally, but also to Vietnam War movies, Apocalypse yep. Now and Platoon uh, most prominently. It is just meant to evoke that without actually having any political content to it. And some of the movie seems pretty clearly shot in Halong Bay, um, which is this really beautiful coastal area of Vietnam that's dotted with small islands. Um, the sort of the beach house where Joshua and Maya are living is, I'm, I would say, like 99% sure on Halong Bay, et cetera. But it also, there's another sort of missed opportunity here um, because I think one of the most interesting things about the movie is it's evocation of religion, but non-engagement with religion. Because clearly one of the things that is tying together humans and AI in this region is a shared faith in Buddhism, right? I mean, you have an enormous numbers of like AI monks in this movie. Um, and you have this emotional climax when you realize that Maya is being kept on life support by like AI Buddhist monks in a temple who can't release her to be reincarnated because harming her violates the religious dictates. And I really wish the movie had made an argument that had been more willing to explicitly engage with the Buddhist idea of reincarnation and maybe even made the case that AI feels like that cosmology made manifest, right? That like the fact that you can transfer someone's consciousness into another body is sort of a religious fulfillment of this idea and something that is, you know, bound these communities together against sort of overwhelming geopolitical opposition. Like make it a movie about a religious war or a, or a war right. that is religious for one side of it and geopolitical for the other, which it would be a novel way to get at the sort of ideological imbalances that were significant during the Vietnam War. I also liked, I mean, I thought there were some creative illusions in including the use of like um, like tunnel systems, uh, which were in a sort of an important North Vietnamese strategy during the war. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I am griping about this movie a lot um, in part because I thought the ceiling on it was so high and it doesn't quite, I mean, it doesn't in some important ways sort of shoot for that ceiling. I think it has definite problems, but I found it just incredibly engaging and beautiful, really beautiful. I find this movie frustrating and uh, annoying for several reasons, one of which is th there's this constant desire to make the AI totally innocent, totally angelic. You know, they're, they're, there's a line later on in the film saying, oh, we didn't actually drop a nuke on Los Angeles. It was, it was a, coding a coding error. error. It was a coding. The humans did that to themselves, and they're blaming us for it. And, like, I'm sorry, the movie is much more interesting if the AI did it. If the AI like sparked a war and then we're like, ah, you know what? We have decided that this is not in everybody. Like I literally an actual conflict that's not just like evil West, beneficent uh, AI Tibetan monks. Like it's it's also the idea of putting the West in the form of the oppressor of the AI Tibetan monks is like while China is totally ignored is very 
uh, funny uh, for all the reasons Alyssa, you know, kind of alluded to earlier. I just, I, I find this movie's politics so childishly frustrating that uh, it, it did detract from the actual visuals, which again, very impressive. Can I ask you guys one question? Um, I feel like we're sort of deep enough in to start talking about John David Washington as an actor kind of independent of his dad. What do you guys make of him so far? That's a face from Sonny. Okay, so I don't make Sonny's face of him so far. He does not have the kind of once-in-a-generation mega talent that his father has. But that's because no one has it. That's because Denzel Washington is unique in having the the most just screen charisma, which I would define as something a little different than acting talent, combined with the most acting talent, like actual technical, uh, like scene level, like can like do the acting work. And so someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman has maxed, maxed out his kind of acting talent, didn't have quite as much charisma, although had uh, really quite a bit. But Denzel Washington just has has a 10 out of 10 on both in a way that is that is really unique and really rare. Um, you just you, you get that almost never in a, in a performer. His son has some acting talent. I would say he's a bad actor. He's not obviously a, a truly great one and a, like a really nice kind of appealing on screen charisma. I can watch him all day happily. And that is something that I, I, I cannot say about, uh, about a lot of performers. I also think that he, in this movie in particular, shows that he can be better than the material. He is taking lines that are almost contentless, that have all that have so little to them, right? They're they're just sort of airy and it's it's like at best they are terse. And he's giving us an something like a real character, some real emotions, but without some real, I don't know, internal contradictions, uh, stuff that he's wrestling with. You can see that there's something going on there in him, in, in the person that he is playing, even though if you just looked at those words on the page, you could not see the stuff that he is playing. And he's playing a, a much deeper, much richer character. And he's really quite a, just an appealing presence on screen. I think every movie I have seen him in, I'm like, I'm just happy. To, like, like I said, I'm happy to watch him. I enjoy it. It brings a smile to my face. So again, do I think he is as good as his father? No, but that's because no one is Denzel Washington, not even Denzel Washington's son. Do I think he is a very talented actor who deserves to be uh, who deserves to be a movie star for the next several decades and who I will be very happy to watch as a as the central player in a, a movie a year for the next 15 or 20 years? Yes, very much. He's fine. <laughs> it's, he's fine. No, I mean, like, I this is I, I I this is so I think he's at his best when he is like kind of generic action man. So like in Tenet, the generic action man stuff in Tenet, and the stuff in this movie that is again kind of generic actiony stuff. I think he's very good. He's got a nice physicality to him, um, and he is he's solid. Uh, his I think his best his best movie work I think is probably Black Klansman. I think. He's very he's very good in that. I I got to be honest, I'm I'm generally underwhelmed by him when he is in just expository scenes, both again, both here and in Tenet. Like it, the you know, these are his two biggest movies and I I think he is kind of he is at least a little underwhelming in both of them just uh, on a beat to beat 
moment. Um, but I really I, disagree said, I, with that. I, it's not just that he's underwhelming. It's that in both movies, he is required to say a bunch of lines that are kind of garbagey on the page that that are the weakest parts of both of both this film and Tenet is the dialogue. And he manages to deliver it in a way where I'm like, oh, I'm ready to pay attention to you and watch you do the next thing rather than I am so tired of you speaking, which I think 90 percent of actors who could have taken these parts, I would have been annoyed with because they could not have made the clunky dialogue work i certainly don't sit there thinking god get off the screen washington i'm tired i'm tired of looking at you but like uh at the same time i'm just like okay yeah he's he's fine he's fine like a slightly above replacement star power is what i would would put him in it's interesting because part of the reason i ask is because i felt like this movie helped me distinguish the ways in which his talent are different from his father's talent um And I think that, I mean, I think Denzel Washington is a very fine actor. I also think he's a scene chewer who gets away with it in part because he's, because he's Denzel Washington, right? And he is just, he is always sort of the biggest thing on the screen. And I think his son's talent is actually for playing sort of quieter and more interior stuff, um, and I think part of what works about him in this and in Tenet is that he's playing a character who is working through a lot of stuff in his head that he's not always saying out loud or even just, you know, kind of small, right? I mean, when he's trying to convince Maya not to shoot him in that scene where his cover is blown and he's like, this is real, we're real. And he's kind of unconvinced, like he's he's trying to convince her he's doing his best and he's failing. Like, and... You know, I thought his sort of the mix of like trying to be big and brassy and ultimately being kind of like a petty, vulnerable person in Malcolm and Marie has really stuck with me. Interestingly, like his work in that movie actually sticks with me much more than Zendaya's work in that movie. And I like Zendaya a lot. I think she's talented. And, you know, there are scenes in other movies where I can really, I can sort of have her fresh in my mind's eye delivering a line. And, you know, I I think he is, I don't think he is as good an actor as his father, but I'm finding him very interesting to watch because, I mean, he often plays, even in his action movies, he's playing a leading man who is sort of confused or disconcerted or compromised. And I think he has a talent for that. It's interesting. Just think in your head if this movie had a Chris in it. Any yes. one of the Chris's, they're all about the same age as John David Washington, and you can imagine this movie with a Chris in the lead. There's a version of that movie that exists in my mind. It is, I, I don't even dislike any of the Chris's. I think they're all perfectly, perfectly good. I would say they're all fine. Sometimes they are better than fine. John David Washington is better than any of them would be in this movie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You think John David Washington is better than Chris Pine? Yes. That's ridiculous. That's a that's a silly thing to say. Uh, but the, Chris uh, Pine is the best of them, and John David Washington is better. This gets into a, a weird form <laughs> of wish casting and wish. Uh, but like, I I am taken aback by this statement of yours. Better which than is any false. Chris. Better than any Ryan. How many Ryans are there? At least two. He's, he's better than Ryan Seacrest, certainly, in this sort of role. <laughs> that's, Could you that's, imagine, a, that's three, Could you imagine tiny Ryan Seacrest trying to play this role? But the, Ryan, Ryan Gosling would have been fairly good in this role. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, I agree that Gosling is my next best choice You're putting here. John David Washington above Ryan Gosling and Chris Pine and, frankly, Chris Hemsworth. 
in this sort of role, I like is ridiculous. That's a ridiculous, even I like, I know Chris Pratt is a controversial figure, but I would still probably take him. And I would actually take all the Chris's except maybe Chris Evans in this movie over John David Washington. Sonny is since wrong. We're, since we're talking about, since we're talking wrong. about Chris's here. Uh, this is, we're off the rails here. We're off the rails here. Um, and we're, we're running long. Uh, so I will, I will wrap it up here. What do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the creator? Peter. Big thumbs up, actually, despite some real script problems. Alyssa. Uh, thumbs up. This is like a definitional 2.5 out of four star movie for me, where it's like I could go thumbs up or thumbs down depending on my mood. And frankly, I'm very much leaning toward thumbs down after this ridiculous <laughs> John David Washington apologia from Peter Suderman. <laughs> However, I will I will stick with the thumbs up that I gave it on Rotten Tomatoes because I do think it is it is visually something very interesting to look at. And people should get more points for being interesting to look at. Lord knows I don't get any. All right, that is it for today's show. Uh, many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Uh, make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If you don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at SunnyBunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. <laughs> 